very first church early in my pastoral ministry. Jonathan Iglehart, a young man uh, a few years younger than me, I was 24, Jonathan was 18, he had a little country bride right out of high school, had a motorcycle accident. He was riding on a gravel road and his bike slid and the handlebar jabbed into his left thigh. They took him to a clinic in town and tragically, the doctor sewed up that puncture wound with debris trapped in it. Several days later, Jonathan Iglehart, this hale and hearty young Kentucky boy was in the ICU of the big hospital in Owensboro. And several days after that, septic shock set in. And hour after hour, day after day, his condition worsened. And the church held vigil in the waiting room of that ICU. The Iglehart family and most of the church. And when it became clear that that boy was not going to survive, after the doctor came in with yet another dismal report, that country girl came over to me, tears streaming down her face, shrieking, grabbing me by the shoulders. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God do something? I've been wrestling with that question ever since. And so have you. And the substance of our faith to a large degree is addressing that question. Where is God in the face of human suffering? Now, sisters and brothers, I'm not going to milk the coconut dry in the next 20 minutes on that profound question. I'm not even sure I told Dr. Lyles. I'm not even sure if I got close to the bullseye in early service. We'll see how this unfolds. But one of the things I love about this church is we do not leave that question at the door. And we never have. We bring that question slap into the middle of our community. And we wrestle with it like Jacob did with the angel of old. And we're broken in that wrestling match also. And I'd like to visit with you for several moments about the necessary suffering of God. What on earth are you talking about, preacher? I thought God was omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. God, all-knowing, all-powerful. God, the first cause, the supreme being, a greater being than which cannot exist. And here you're talking about the suffering of God and even the necessity of God's suffering. I submit to you that the warp and woof, ups and downs, circuitous path of the people of God for 4,000 years is around that question. God found Abram, a nomad in Mesopotamia, wandering around in that region between those two great rivers. And God revealed God's self to Abraham. He walked 1,500 miles. God said, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. Abram was lost. He was a wanderer. And God found him. Through a miraculous set of circumstances, Abram did have descendants. 
And a short time after that, there was the religion of the Hebrews. God's commandment to the Hebrews was to worship him in a tent that could be folded up and moved to the next place. But it wasn't any time before a tent wouldn't do. Because a tent is too temporary and it's too tenuous and it's not permanent enough and you can't see it and the people aren't reminded of just how great they are. And so the people built a temple and God reluctantly approved. Short time after that, they wanted a monarchy. It wasn't good enough to have God as a king. They wanted a king that they could touch a king with a crown of jewels, a king with a scepter, a king with a palace. And that's what they had. And Israel became the greatest nation on earth. And then they started putting their security in their wealth and in their might and in their politics, in their military power and in their financial wealth and in the concentration of all of this security and the prophets came along to say you are losing your focus on the true and the living God who Paul tells us in the passage to the Romans we know by faith by faith by faith by faith they don't call it faith for nothing we can't see it we can't put it in a test tube it's not a mathematical formula it's not anything that we can control we don't order it we are by faith and the prophet said, you're going to be judged. And God loves you so much that you're going to come back into faith. You've got to reject the banks. You've got to reject the armies. You've got to reject the halls of Congress. And you've got to come back to your God. Jesus shows up on the planet. And in Caesarea Philippi, we had this text last fall. Some of you may remember that. They're walking through Caesarea Philippi. It's a marvelous place. The Israel government has done an incredible excavation of Caesarea Philippi. It's a place where all the uh, panoply of pantheistic gods in the Roman Empire, there was a temple, a grotto to every one of those gods. And some of them are, have been excavated and are there in bold relief. You can see the, uh, the statue to the god Pan, for example, in Caesarea Philippi. They're walking through. This wasn't our text that Steve read a moment ago, but Jesus says, what are people say? about me. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are our long-awaited one. We've been with you long enough now. We believe you are our Christ. You are our Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, we pick it up today. Don't tell anybody. Sternly orders them. Don't tell anybody that. Why do you suppose Jesus said that? Because the human tendency is not to deny ourselves, but to project ourselves onto a king, onto a ruler who will make us large and in charge, who will fill our bank accounts in all of our financial institutions, who will make our party win, put us in the halls of Congress, and Jesus knows the only way is through faith. It's to deny ourselves. 
and to deny that impulse of our ego. I think I shared with you last fall that anytime you read the word flesh in the Pauline corpus in one of Paul's epistles, you can replace ego for flesh and you'll have the right interpretation. And that is false religion. And we see it all around us. And it's the reason young people are staying away in droves. And it wasn't too long after Jesus before Christianity was legalized, right? For 300 years, it was illegal to have these little small groups. But Constantine came along. His mama was a Christian. He had a vision. He made Christianity legal. What did he do? He moved all those Christians out of their nomadic wandering into those pagan temples. He said, you're going to have a place now. You're going to have a palace. You're going to have an edifice. And that's the reason we have Corinthian columns on every Baptist church in Georgia. <laughs> to this day. The monks came along a short time after that and said, that's not the center of gravity. That's not what this gospel is calling us to. They left all that institutional power and they moved up into Europe in small groups about the size of our Sunday school classes and they formed community together and they prayed together. A bunch of them were killed. They suffered on behalf of the diseased populations up into Germany and over into France and even up into Northern Europe. And Europe was evangelized in a short period of time, not because Constantine had this Christian nationalism, but because small groups of Christians trusted Jesus in the gospel by faith and suffered with each other and suffered on behalf of the people they served. And I submit to you in this little cliff note version of salvation history that that up and down is the entire history of God's interaction with us. Peter is the church of today. Peter is the Christian nationalist. And here's what he says to Jesus. He says, now Jesus, we're not going to let you suffer. You're this talk of suffering and rejection and death. We're not going to let that happen to you. Jesus says that he must suffer great suffering, be rejected even by the religious rulers, be killed and three days rise again. And Peter took him off to the side and said, none of this talk. We want to be the ruler. We're not going to let you suffer. We're not going to let you experience any discomfort. We're certainly not going to let you go through any of that. And Peter began to rebuke Jesus. The text says Jesus turns and addresses the entire group. And says this, it's one of the most interesting passages in the New Testament, and it is the center of gravity of the Lenten season. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Because it is Satan that wants to make us rich. It's Satan that wants to make us powerful. 
It's Satan that wants to give us our best life now, and he knows how to do it. Why, Charlie, if your church is huge and you make a bucket ton of money and your political party gets in power, why, you're going to be a successful preacher. And I've fallen for some of that. But here's Jesus saying, no, the way of faith is the way of suffering, of self-denial. And he says, you got to do this. You got to deny all that. Take up your cross, your suffering, your grief, face your addiction, your loss, your confusion. You got to take up your cross. And then, third, follow. Me. Now that's the gospel. Because we this our leaders saying it directly. What do you get if you gain the Supreme Court, both houses of Congress, the White House, and lose your soul? What do you have if you have Goldman Sachs and every other Investment bank on Wall Street. And lose your soul. The reason we're in this room is because we know that ain't working for us. We know it. And we're honest with each other. When we come in here, we've been in some small groups called Sunday school classes. And here's what you've done in those Sunday school classes. You've broken bread together and you've shared your pain with each other. You've talked about your grief, the loss of your loved ones. You've talked about your own friends who are facing physical infirmity. You've shared your struggles with each other. You've prayed with each other. And we come together in corporate worship. And the only way, the only way, and I hadn't really exhausted this, help me with this, but the only way for God to love us is to share our suffering. It is the only way. It is the extension of God. God cannot stay wherever God is. And it's not a where because it's not a directional reference. But God would not be God in God's love unless and until he is bearing all of our infirmity. This is the incarnational impulse. This is why suffering is always a necessity for God to complete God's love for us. And this is why we say love so amazing, so divine. Dr. Lyles is about to lead us in that hymn. Demands my soul, my life, my all. I'm not there. You're not there. But we're working on it together. And we know that if we can come into that space of shared mutual confession, really open up and let each other see our pain, let God bear that pain, we will come into a fullness that salvation is a word for. And that salvation will be so complete and so total and so mysterious 
that death itself can't contain it. And we will be brought into newness of life. This is what we're working on this season. This is what we, this is our discipline. This is our reflection. We want to skip over all that and get right to Easter Sunday morning. That's human nature. But we can't. And we know that we can't. I'll be preaching on this theme. I'm going to be hitting this theme. And what suffering means. What our violence means. Mark's prayer. My goodness. We're a violent people. Blood running in the streets. What does it mean for God to incur that violence? As the story says, God did. I didn't know the answer to Sabrina Eigelhart's question in 1981. And I'm not sure I know the answer now. But I know this. I saw that family come together in unbelievable love in the wake of that boy's death. I saw a gritty, hard, cold Kentucky farmer pour out his heart on his three remaining sons, become active in the life of our church, become a deacon in the church, and pour out Christ's love to the whole community. I don't think for a minute that God caused that boy to die. I don't think God caused those motorcycle wheels to go sideways. I don't think God caused a handlebar to jab into his thigh. I don't think uh, God caused an, uh, perhaps a overworked and uh, underrested physician to sew up the wound. I don't think God caused any of that. I think God entered that picture and took that sepsis upon himself. And then all the grief and all the tragedy upon himself. And I believe when we are that kind of people denying ourselves and all of our need for all that, taking up our cross and admiring Jesus, giving Jesus a lick and a promise, respecting Jesus, telling Jesus how great he is all the time, following him to a cruel cross that's when we will experience an empty tomb Paul Tillich tells the story of some Jewish folks in Warsaw who were fleeing Nazi terror and they were hiding out in a cemetery 
in Warsaw. And a young Jewish mother gave birth while they were there in that refuge of death. A little Jewish baby was born and an elder in the community held the baby up to the heavens upon that child's arrival on the planet and cried out in prayer, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? For who but the Messiah can be born in a grave? That's our question. In the face of our suffering, in all of our death, looking for the birth of Messiah. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. When I survey the wondrous cross, is our hymn of discipleship. If today you would confess Christ as Lord and leader of your life and you've never made that confession public before the church, we invite you to do that. It's a glorious moment. You'll never forget it. You'll see the pleasure of God in these faces of these beautiful people. If you have already made that all-important confession and you would unite by the leadership of the Holy Spirit with this church and you would come giving your individual gifts to this community, you may come as a Baptist Christian upon transfer of your membership from another Baptist church. You may come upon your celebration of faith having had that Christian experience through another denomination. The invitation is extended.